I'll tell you that uh, there will be a Michael J. Smith concert. There is another Mike Smith that I know very well, and I'm happy that he is here this morning from the Gideons to speak to you. I want to point out that in the little green leaflet inside the bulletin, uh, there are a list of six members of our church who are also Gideons, Stephen Foster and Walter Hall and Arthur Killian and James Gidmore and Felix Welton and Arthur Weiss. Uh, we have many men in our church who give of their time to help in the work of distributing copies of Scripture. Uh, the reason that we had a change in our first hymn, and by the way, our service doesn't begin at 11.55 as the bulletin <laughs> as it this morning. Uh, we got a little mixed up with the time change. Uh, <laughs> the, this is Reformation Sunday, actually. And I can't let Reformation Sunday go without singing a mighty fortress. And Tom said we had to start off with a little faster hymn, so we put that Rejoice Ye Pure in Heart there. And I'm glad that something a little stirring to begin uh, to introduce Mike Smith. This man that I'm going to introduce to you is uh, what we would call in, the, in church history circles as a mechanic theologian. John Bunyan was a mechanic theologian. They were people who came into a knowledge of the scriptures and through insight as Christian lay people are able to relate to other people in a way that uh, is just wonderful in uh, bringing people to a faith in Jesus Christ. Mike Smith is very much involved in the Baptist lay movement all over the world. He's been in Australia, in Ireland, in England, uh, in uh, South America, in many places. Uh, where he teaches witnessing and where he goes and knocks on doors and confronts people with the claims of Christ. Mike, tell us just a little bit about that and then tell us about the Gideon. Thank you, Calvin. It's a real privilege for me to come and worship with you this morning and to stand in this pulpit and take a few minutes just to share with you what Christ is doing in my life and to share with you what Christ is doing through the Gideon ministry all over the world. The ministry that Calvin referred to is the Baptist Lay Witness Foundation where we as Baptist people travel into all over the country at no cost to the churches where we visit. We pay our own expenses just as we do in the Gideons. And we go and pair up or team up with their people, the members of the church, and go out in the community where they live and where they are and talk and witness to people about the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I covet your prayers as we do this ministry wherever we call and wherever God offers an opportunity to go. Now let me switch to the Gideon ministry and tell you this morning that I stand here to represent a group of men that is concerned about men and women and boys and girls all over the world. Our ministry is placing Bibles in hotels and motels and schools and colleges and hospitals and universities all over the world in order that men and women and boys and girls might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more than 80 years now, we have been engaged in this ministry of placing Bibles, much like the one that I hold in. If you travel much, I'm sure in the hotels and motels that you've stopped in that you've seen a Gideon Bible, either much like this, one that I hold. Now, also, we are distributing testaments to, to school children. We uh, go into the fifth grade of our schools and distribute little red testaments like this one. Our wives uh, often give out these blue testaments as they witness uh, as part of the women's auxiliary. The wives' main function is to give out this little white testament to nurses and those in the nursing profession as they graduate from our nursing schools. 
and hospitals all over the country. This Green Testament is one that we distribute in the colleges and universities of our land. Soon they'll be coming here to give out these testaments. The black one is a serviceman's testament, one that is given to all men in the military service. And down through the years, I suppose that the greatest ministry we've had is distributing this little red testament to school children in the fifth grade. Now, I've had the privilege a lot of times to stand in this blast of young people and say, how many of you would like to have one of these? And they hold up their hands and we have them either come by a table and pick one up or we walk down the aisle of this and lay one on the desk. And I'd always say to them that this little book is red on the outside, but it won't do you any good till it's red on the inside. And I say, how many of you know? I said, there's, a, there's really a, a key verse in this whole testament that really explains it all. And I said, how many of you know that verse? And hands will go up all over a class usually. And we'll join in saying John 3.16 together. And folks, I don't know any greater ministry that we could be involved in than placing the word that people might come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the Gideons... Uh, in 134 countries in over 55 different languages we're placing Bibles and Testaments today at the rate of a million copies about every 14 or 15 days. Now the only way we're able to do that is as people like you and churches like yours give money. Take these monies and buy Bibles. And then we become the, the messenger boys or the distributors. And we take these Bibles and Testaments and place them in the traffic lanes of life. The testimonies that we receive back, we have a magazine called Returns. And as we get, uh, in our monthly magazine, we're always getting stories back of how that some prisoner, some man in, uh, at the end of life's road, he's already convicted of drugs and, and other crimes and he's been sent to prison. He's down and out and he said, three Gideons come to my prison and, pre and, and presented to me the plan of salvation. And I accepted Christ. Today that young man is in Zimbabwe serving as a missionary, teaching others about Jesus Christ. So whatever we, when we stand and present a, uh, a report much like the one I'm giving you, there's three things that we ask of a church as we come. One is that you would pray for us that we would stand uh, in our place about the camp. That we would be ready to do what God wants us to do. That we would take the Bibles and the Testaments and place them in the areas and the traffic lanes of life where God has asked us to do that. And where the doors are open. In the 134 countries or 135 countries that we're in, God is working a miraculous work. And, uh, and I just wish I had the time to share with you the many other areas that we're working in and busy and, and share with you some testimonies from others. But in, to save time, I'm going to just say that, that God himself has blessed us and blessed this ministry through the gifts that you've given and through the prayers that you've prayed. Because one way is to, is to pray. The other way is for men like the ones that have in your church or already have joined the Gideons to join in and help us because we're few in number. And the other way is to give. And every penny that you give is used to buy Bibles. There's one other way I want to share with you briefly that we're distributing Bibles, and that's through the Gideon Memorial Bible Plan, where you can take a Bible, and anytime you see a blue one like this that's been given in memory or in honor of someone, 
There's a rack, a lobby of the church or out in the vestibule, where you can donate Bibles like this in memory or in, in memory or in honor of a loved one that's gone on to be with the Lord or in memory of some school teacher or some one that you would want to recognize on a birthday or an anniversary. But as these Bibles are given, I want to just leave you with this closing thought. That the average Bible lasts about seven years in a motel or hotel room. And as that Bible is placed, we're told by the National Hotel and Motel Association that an average of three people will stay in that room, or an average of two people will stay in that room for 300 nights out of the year. So use a little mathematics there and say that if we're going to place a Bible at a cost of $3.90 in a hotel room, it's going to witness to two people 300 times for seven years. That's a great return on your investment. Pray for us and may God bless you as we worship here together this morning. Thank you. A meeting of the members of the session and of deacons right up here on the platform immediately following uh, the benediction uh, for the purpose of making a photograph for the church directory. The photographer told me just a moment ago, if you didn't come up here, I was going to be the only one in that picture. And I don't want to be that way. So you come on up for the uh, church officer's photograph. Let me explain a little bit. In the bulletin, there is a copy of the scripture that we have today for the main lesson. Uh, this is uh, printed in two. Uh, I had it in one form last Sunday. This Sunday is the Revised Standard uh, Version. And uh, I wanna, want you to follow with me as I read it. This is from John chapter 5, verse 1 following. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in the Hebrew called Bethesda, which has four porticos. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and troubled the water. Whoever stepped in first after the troubling of the water was healed of whatever diseases he had. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew that he had been lying there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is troubled. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your pallet, and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his pallet and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, the man who healed me said to me, Take pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. As there was a crowd in that place, and afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
And this was why the Jews persecuted Jesus. Because he did this on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working still, and I am working. This was why the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also called God his father, making himself equal with God. May God bless to our hearts an understanding of this part of his I've got a bit of a cold this morning, so I'd ask you to listen to the words of this song more than anything else, and I just pray that the Lord blesses you with it.
Let us pray. O God, our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in all of the mercies and goodness which you have shown to us. We thank you for the measure of health and strength which we have. We thank you for the goods which you have allowed us to supervise and to know and to use. We thank you for the freedom and opportunity to worship you, for the privilege of having an open Bible in this country, and the opportunity to witness to other people about our faith in Jesus Christ, and for the work of the Holy Spirit here in our chapel today, for Mandy's song, for Mike's witness, for Steve's presentation. We pray that you will bless each one of us, that now you might speak to us, so that when we go away from the chapel today, we will be more determined than ever to use what you have done for us and what you will yet do through us to glorify you. And now make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts to be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our and our Redeemer. Amen. We were putting this bulletin together. I forgot all about Reformation Sunday. And uh, I don't like to do that. I've been gone several uh, Reformation Sundays in a row now. I've been out in Texas during this time. And last year you got a very good sermon, I believe, from Dr. John Crawford on the Reformation. One of the things that uh, it fits in very well, I think, or at least I hope it's going to fit, with our lesson this morning. Uh, when you stop to think of the enormous magnitude of this one man, Martin Luther, it's really quite tremendous. He was born about 10 years before Columbus discovered America. He was born in 1483, on November the 11th. That's just a little over 500 years ago. And according to the New York Times, there have been more books written about this individual, Martin Luther, than any other person in history except Jesus. There are 80 million people who are called Lutherans today. Why? Why do universities um, such as Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, only to name a few, have whole departments of Luther studies? He had a tremendous influence on economics, he had an influence on ethics. He had contributions that were made in the field of government. But everyone agrees that his greatest single contribution came in personal faith and in religion. Martin Luther was born in a rural area. His father, who had worked his way as a miner, and had a smelterer, had wanted his son to get a good education and to be a wealthy lawyer. Martin Luther was very bright. Even as a little boy, emotions touched him and memories clung to him. The whole circumstances of his life at the time he was born and baptized as an infant in the church but the bells on the church in which he was baptized not only had words asking the blessings of God and the blessings of the Holy Spirit and the blessings of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the blessings of St. Mary and the blessings of St. Anne and the blessings of others. 
And like other little baby boys that were born at that time, he was born on St. Martin's Day, and so he was named Martin. But there was no feeling that God could ever get near to him. God was far aloof from Martin Luther. And as this bright little boy later remembered as an old man and illustrated it as the law of God, he could remember going around singing Christmas carols in the cold night air. And he said the law of God was like a harsh schoolmaster that showed us our deficiencies and our need of God's love and grace. He, could say, he said that he could remember his little boy singing out in front of a house and a voice thundered and the door flew open and light streamed out in the darkness and a voice shouted, you ruffins, come here. And the little boys came trembling to the door. And then the man inside gave them some German sausages and let them come in and be warm. And he said, the law of God was like that. It thundered at me. But when I came near and found faith in Jesus Christ, then I found food to eat and warmth and light and strength. But when he began his pilgrimage, he thought that the only way that you could ever know God or satisfy him or to be holy was by the keeping of rule after rule after rule. And he knew he couldn't keep them. And so on sultry July day in 1505, Coming back from law school, having made a brilliant career as a lawyer, as a law student, a bolt of lightning struck near him, and he fell to the ground and screamed to the top of his voice, Saint Anna, save me, and I will become a monk. And then he went into an Augustinian monastery, determined that he would do all of those things that should be done to make him righteous before God. He fasted until he described himself as nothing but a rack of bones. He had other people take a whip and flagellate him across the back, trying to beat the sin out of him. He worried his confessors by coming to them confessing the most trivial things until finally they told him to go away until he had something worth confessing to come back again. He took the vows of chastity and poverty and obedience and he kept them. The first time that he celebrated mass, his hands trembled and shook so that he had to be assisted because he was afraid. But there was no peace in his heart with God. But he had a kindly vicar general who did know the Bible. And when Luther came to him one day to make confessions, the vicar general, whose name was Stipitz, said to him, why don't you trust the love of God? And Luther blurted out, I don't love God, I hate God. And the vicar listened to him and found out his problem. He hated God because he thought God was asking of him that which he could not do and he could not perform and he could not live up to. And so he was miserable, wretched and miserable inside. 
the vicar said to him, I will put you to work reading the Bible and teaching it to others. He was so bright with languages. And so he began to study the scriptures and to prepare his lectures on the Psalms. He taught in a little school that wasn't as big as Montreat Anderson College in Wittenberg, a town not as big as Black Mountain in size. But as he began to read the Psalms and see the immediate expressions of a soul before God and then to apply the meaning of scripture to his own life, one day he was translating the 22nd Psalm, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he thought, in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus spoke this psalm when he was dying on a cross. Why? Why would Jesus say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He could understand why he would be forsaken because of the evil man and he knew his sins and they haunted him all the time. But why would Jesus, the Son of God, say such a thing? And then he began to put things together. He was forsaken for us. When he began to read Romans and lecture on the epistle to the Romans, he began to see that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be redeemed. Then when he began to read Galatians and teach that epistle of Paul, he saw that no one could keep the law, but that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Then when he read Ephesians, he could see clearly that by grace are you saved through faith, that it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And when those truths began to sink in on his soul, he realized that salvation, total help from God for our total need, that it is God's love doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that our response to that is to live lives of faithfulness to him. And that's when Martin Luther came alive spiritually. That's why he began to see abuses in the church, superstition and idolatry, and know that it could be stopped. And when he tacked his 95 sentences for debate on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and challenged John Tetzel, who was uh, sort of the head of the Pope's building program in Rome, Pope Leo X was trying to pay off Michelangelo and Master Raphael. One of the key texts of the Reformation might have come from 2 Corinthians, now concerning the collection, because that's what it was. It was about money that was being a scheme for raising money. But the sale of indulgences to get you out of purgatory was the wrong way to go at it, and Luther saw it and challenged it. He said, if the Pope is already the richest man in the world, why doesn't he build the, the church out of his own money? And the Germans had a logical brain that could take that in and think about it. Then when he said, uh, uh, when he, he spoke of the love of God, he, he challenged it, and he didn't realize what he had done. But it began to, began to shake everything. 
Karl Barth gave the best description of it I ever read. He said, Luther was like a man climbing up a spiral staircase, and in the darkness and the still of the night, he slips and falls, and he reaches out for the first thing he can hold to, and he catches hold of a bell, a church bell, and it rings all over the darkness. Well, that's what happened. That bell began to ring. And that was the mighty fortress that we sung about a while ago from the 46th Psalm, the God who takes us unto himself. Now then, I think we can see from, these, from this, the lesson this morning, from uh, our gospel lesson. If you look into John chapter 5, you see, first of all, the circumstances. Here is an illustration of grace, which recognizes need, and of God's mercy, which does something about it. Here is a man at some unidentified festival. John builds his uh, record of the gospel around great festivals. And here is a festival. And Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem for that festival. And there at that festival, he goes to the pool of Bethesda, a very beautiful name for a hospital. Because here he not only meets the needs of the man physically, but he meets his meets his whole need, the needs of his soul as well. This man by the pool of Bethesda has been there for 38 long years, sick condition. And Jesus sees this man and sees his lack of power and his sympathy goes out to the man. There, it, it if you could have imagined the scene, this pool with its five porches, and by the way, that's been discovered and is one of the um, great verifiers of the authenticity of the Gospel of John. We are told that myriads, multitudes of people were sick, that they were blind and maimed, paralyzed, all of the sicknesses in that place, that there was some healing that was associated with this pool, some rumor of an angel that came and troubled the water. And the first person to get into the pool at the troubling of the waters could be healed. Now the part of angel in the troubling of the waters does not appear in the most ancient manuscripts of this particular part of the Gospel of John. And I'm glad it doesn't, because God doesn't uh, speak to us on a competitive basis. But his grace is different from that. But something about healing was connected with that pool, and that's why people came to it. And here is this man who had been there for, for, had been sick for 38 years, and Jesus knew that he had been in that condition for a long time. And he asks a rather startling question of him. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? I had uh, one of our sons went to Bangladesh and worked last summer uh, with Dr. Herb Coddington. And he told me when he got back of some beggar uh, that one of the surgeons had told him about uh, who refused an operation because he said if he got the operation and he was made well, he couldn't make a living. 
that was better off if he stayed a beggar. So Jesus asked the question, do you want to get well? There are people who really don't want to forsake their sins. There are people who would rather continue to live in some way of rebellion against God. They don't want to forsake. And so they cripple themselves by it. Here in America, with the dreadful spread of the AIDS disease, 75% uh, of that is transmitted in the most grossly immoral fashion, which the Word of God condemns completely in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We know better than this. We have sympathy for people who suffer, but so much of this is brought on because of our own rebellion against God. Do we want to get well? Do we want to forsake that which is evil so God can do something with us? So Jesus asked him the question, do you want to get well? The sick man answers almost like a computer. A person who is depressed, by the way, uh, will seldom answer yes or no. I put in the bulletin a description of, of this as hapless, helpless, and hopeless. Clinically, that's an excellent definition of depression. You feel hapless, that you just haven't had any good fortune at all in life. The word hap comes from an English word which has to do with a very un-Presbyterian word called luck. It means, uh, uh, it means that nothing has ever gone your way, hapless. And then helpless, that no one can help you. Notice how the man says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. It's almost like you pushed a button and a computer starts it. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before. You see his depression? That's the voice of despair. He is hapless, he is helpless, he has no hope. Someone else always gets in front of me. I'm sure if there was a fuller text of it, he probably went on to say, you know what you ought to do is organize this thing and give everyone to, who tries to get to the pool when it bubbles up a number so that it's done fairly. Well, you ought to see what happens to me. There are these big guys that look like they could play for the Dallas Cowboys who come up here and they push their way through and get their friends in, and I don't have a chance. And that's not in the Bible. But uh, uh, that's, uh, th that's sort of the attitude that you get. Hapless, helpless, and hopeless. And it's all there. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus gives him a command. He says, rise, take up your pallet, and walk. What he asks us to do, he gives us the grace to do. He will not ask a person to break from a homosexual practice unless he would give to that person the ability to do it. He does not ask us to break from alcoholism unless he will give to us grace to fight that battle and to see it overcome. We excuse our ill temper. We excuse all of the other evil things that we do and make excuses for him. God cannot forgive excuses. He forgives sin. He does not forgive excuses. Here he says, arise, take up your pallet, 
and walked. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. One of my favorite healings, and we're going to see just in a minute about the, the uh, confrontation that this brings. Jesus, one time in, in Luke chapter 5, uh, I used to preach a sermon called The Church with a Hole in the Roof. Boy, I'd like to have one. The Presbyterian Church with a Hole in the Roof. You remember that, that poor man that w was let down on a stretcher down into the congregation? They broke up all the tiles on the roof, and then they let this man down, and you could just see all the people dodging the, the pieces of tile that were coming. It would have broken up a Presbyterian meeting. But Jesus was there, and he, he was so unflappable. Uh, I think he must have smiled at all of this. And down comes this man on the ropes. In, in, and then you could almost look up there and see these other people looking down, and they were saying, what's he saying to him? And the other one's listening, and he said, he said, son, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the other guy said, you mean we got to pull him all the way back up here? <laughs> uh, what's he talking about? The forgiveness of sins? We wanted to get him healed. Well, Jesus said, thy sins are forgiven you. You're healed. You see, let God do his thing. Let God do it his way. Later, he's going to tell this, this man in this story in John 5, this narrative here, he's going to say to him, do not sin again lest a worse thing befall you. So what he had done might have had some connection with sin. Not all sickness does mean, but some sickness does. And that's what he speaks about here. Now let me quickly get to the rest of it. Now it was a Sabbath day, and therefore the Jews were saying to him, it is the Sabbath, it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. They didn't care a thing about how long the man had suffered. But he answered them, the one who made me well told me to take up my pallet, my bed, and walk. Now notice what their attitude is toward that. Who is it that told you to take up your pallet and walk on the Sabbath day? They're not rejoicing because the man is healed at all. But they're upset because one of their traditions had been broken. This man never worked on the Sabbath day. He never worked anywhere for 38 years. He picks up his bed and walks. And he felt that the man who gave him that healing power also gave him that privilege. And so he bears a sort of witness to Jesus at this point. And this angers them. And there are people like that. When Luther came preaching free grace from God, salvation apart from work, the printing press had come in by this time, and it began to be printed, and there was something worth printing. And it went out everywhere and had a tremendous effect. I don't think there's ever been any invention that had such an, uh, a remarkable effect on a movement as the printing press did on the Reformation. And then Bibles became available about that time. Then Luther put into the language of the common people the Bible. Luther would have approved very much of the Gideon and of the distribution of copies of Scripture. Our faith is based upon the Word of God. What we believe and what we teach should be taught from good and necessary inference from Scripture. So this leads to the confrontation with the authorities. 
And that led to the controversy, and you'll get to the heart of it when you see Jesus. My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. God did not cease. With the Sabbath day, he rested, but it did not mean that life did not go on. People are born on the Sabbath. People die on the Sabbath. God's work is still done. And that's what he speaks of here. He had broken one of their traditions. He had not broken the law of God. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, those things the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things, and he himself is doing greater work than these will he show him, that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. That's a great gospel message. The Son also gives life to whom he wishes. The circumstances we talked about, the confrontation we talked about, the controversy that this created, but the biggest part of the controversy came because Jesus was calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. It's a wonderful miracle that occurred in Martin Luther's life. And it's a wonderful miracle that can occur in your life. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. I guess the best illustration that I know of this from any legal aspect happens to be quite true. In the days when John Marshall was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, an unusual incident occurred. A man by the name of George Wilson had been sentenced to hang crime. For some reason, the governor saw fit to pardon him. But the convict would not accept the pardon. So the problem was referred to the Supreme Court. And John Marshall ruled that a pardon was not valid unless it was accepted. And so George Wilson was hanged. Christ has procured a pardon sufficient for your sin and for mine. We can take that pardon on faith and be forgiven. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. If I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God hath raised him from the dead, says Romans 10 and 9, Thou shalt be saved. That's a salvation passage. You're not saved automatically. Respond to faith. Jesus said to the man, Rise. He had to do something. Take up your bed. He put the instrument that symbolized his defeat on his shoulder and walked off with it. And that's a good lesson for us to remember too. Faith demands of us a response. He offers us pardon, and he offers us grace, but we, we need to respond 
in faith by accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior. If you've never done that, you could do that this morning. You could do it by either coming forward here in the church or by asking the Lord in your own heart to accept you. You could sing and really mean it, the last hymn that we have today. May the mind of Christ my Savior... Let us bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we see our sins, and as we see thy righteousness and thy holiness, like Martin Luther, we know that we are hopeless apart from the love which you have shown. Help us to know that we don't earn that love, but that out of grace you have seen us and extended your mercy to us. Help us to have the good sense as the Holy Spirit enables us to accept that pardon, to take it, and to walk in newness of life, determined to live for your glory, hearts of gratitude, hearts that are filled with love because of what you have done for us in our Savior. Bless each person here today, those who are still struggling with doubts. Help them to see how simple it is and how wonderful it is, and then to know the joy of your love and to reach others with that love too. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.